0: There's only one guard on this bus, and I, it's gotta be any, at least 25 to 30 of us on the bus going to work. I went to the back, and um, when he was starting to turn, I opened the back door and I jumped off the bus. And running this wooded area that I had seen many, many times.
1: This is Bobby Love. In 1977, he escaped from a prison road crew in North Carolina.
0: As I when it ran into that wooded area, I uh, changed my clothes and left the clothes that I had on over top of my personal clothes there in the woods, and I came out on the other side. I started running, I ran, I walked, I ran, I walked. I started asking questions on how I can get downtown and which way to go to get downtown. So people started telling me, man, that's a long ways, man, I didn't care. Just let me know which way am I, if I, am I going the right
2: way didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about that. I think you need to come over, stand in my agree shoes, agree to disagree.
1: This is Top of Mind, I'm Julie Rose. In breaking out of prison, Bobby Love gave himself a fresh start. He took a new identity, Bobby Love was not his real name, and that new identity had no criminal record to trip him up when he applied for jobs or housing. No parole requirements that might land him back in jail over a minor infraction, like missing an appointment. On the show today, we are exploring the power of a clean slate. Why we rarely give them to people who commit a crime in America. And the difference it might make if we did.
0: I was, um, you know, raised in the Jim Crow South. North Carolina was a hard place to grow up in. You know, it was eight of us in the family at that time, and my mother couldn't afford to, you know, give me a lot of the things that I would like to have. And um, I, I tried to get it myself by doing what I was doing.
1: Which was mowing lawns and carrying bags at the golf course. But he needed more to be the well-dressed teenager doing the fun things he wanted to be doing.
0: Oh, boy. I started stealing as I would... Um, I would go down there by the one of the colleges, and um, people would leave their pocketbooks in the the car and um, I would take advantage of that you know I would take checks and stuff like that from different people's mailboxes Um, when I was in uh, school I would go into the locker room sometime and I would go through guys pockets they left their clothes or left their locker open and um, actually that was where I got busted
1: He got sent to a training school for young offenders, but escaped and caught a bus to Washington, D.C., where his brother lived. There, he went to school on and off and worked some odd jobs. But he kept stealing.
0: At that point, I didn't learn anything. I was still in the contents of, you know, just trying to get money and buy clothes, go places, movies, concerts.
1: By the time he's 21, he's already done another year in juvenile detention for getting caught robbing a pharmacy. But he and his buddies have only become more brazen. Now they're driving down to North Carolina to rob credit unions where they figure security isn't as tight.
0: We had a few jobs where we got away with the last one, with the third one. Um, We we normally tie up the people and one of the guys that I was with tied up a person with a... um, with a sheet. And that sheet did not hold that person five seconds. And as we were running out the back door, I looked back and we could see the people who was looking at us. And uh, we had a stolen car and I'm running for this car. And all of us was running for this car. And I'm sure they saw the car that we got in and we drove off. We did get out of Greensboro, but then again, they um, boxed us in with some more um, policemen and um, we were arrested. I got convicted and I got 25 to 30 years in prison.
1: He started off on good behavior, but after about six years, he got put on a road crew picking up trash.
0: When they put me on the road, I felt that this was my last straw. I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm better than this as far as working out here on this road. And um, I just started thinking about how I can get away from this.
1: Bobby jumped off the prison bus and ran toward downtown. After about 3 hours, he got to the bus depot and paid a guy to go in and buy him a one-way ticket to New York City.
0: I stood outside kind of away from the bus depot and uh, when cars came past, I would like turn my head or uh, just just try to look like I'm, you know, not afraid of anything or if, if somebody was looking for me and I'm anxious or anything like that. And then when the bus came, I waited to, I was one of the last people to get on the bus and then a car came up and a few more people came in. And next thing I know, I was getting down in the seat that you could see practically my eyes because I'm thinking that people might look on the side of the bus and see me. So I I tried to get down as low as I could on the seat to, um, to not be seen.
1: It's on that bus bound for New York City that Walter Miller, convicted felon and prison escapee, becomes Bobby Love.
0: There was a girl on the bus, and um, she asked me what was my name, and so I said, Bobby, just like that, you know? First, it was just Bobby, when when she asked me. Now, I'm in New York, I'm up here for maybe two or three days, and I'm just walking around the streets, and I see a social security office. I walk into that social security office and tell the lady I'm applying, I wanna apply for a social security card. Have you ever had a card? I told her, no. So I put down there, Bobby A. Love, that was my name.
1: And that's it, Bobby's free. He's homeless at first, picking up odd jobs, but he pretty quickly established himself and a few years later, he met Cheryl.
3: We worked at a hospital he, we worked in the kitchen. I was a dietary aide, and he was a... Uh-huh. Well, I was an all-around cleanup person uh-huh. in the kitchen. Right. Oh, I liked him. I thought, well, he was a little loud. That was the thing, but <laughs> because he would be singing songs, and I was like, who is this? And they said, oh, his name is Bobby. Cheryl, he's a nice guy. He's funny. You got to see. I said, okay, whatever. So <laughs> he um, he made me laugh. He was very, um, friendly with people, you know, he was all around nice guy. And, you know, we would sit down in the cafeteria and talk and everything. And I started liking him, you know.
1: Would you have gone out with Bobby if, if he had hadn't escaped, had served the time, got out of prison, now he was working as a convicted felon?
3: If I had known, (laughs) um... It depends on how he would be acting.
1: (laughs) How Bobby was acting at the time was completely upright and law abiding. All those years, he could not manage to stay out of trouble. But now he had this fresh start and he was determined not to waste it.
0: I had said to myself, I was not going to get in any trouble. So if I went somewhere where some trouble was, you know, I'm out of there. I'm getting away from there. You know, I didn't want to get busted and go back to jail. So that was the thing I had said to myself. No way. 25 to 30 years in prison was no
1: joke. For the next 40 years, Bobby leads an upstanding life. He and Cheryl get married. She has no idea about Bobby's past. He never tells her that he escaped prison or that his real name isn't even Bobby. They have four kids, two girls and two boys. None of them has been in any kind of trouble with the law either. Bobby was a deacon in their church. He took the family to Disney World twice. He's very proud of that. He just completely left all of that past life behind him, which is impressive, right? But the thing is, Bobby might not have been able to remake his life so completely without the prison escape. If he'd stayed in, gotten out on parole after 10 or 15 years, say, he would have had a felony record limiting where he could live and work. Bobby managed to keep Cheryl in the dark and to not get caught right up until a January morning in 2015.
3: Oh my goodness. Okay, so I was in the kitchen making a cup of tea. I had got up early for work and there was this loud knock at the door. To my surprise, when I opened that door, the FBI, NYPD, the guns drawn came through and one of them like, man, move back. You don't know who this is. And I'm like, what? That's my husband, what are you talking about? And, you know, just shocked. So then there's like a semi-circle around um, my husband. I really couldn't hear what he was saying. They were talking like, low, you know. And so they said to Bobby, what did they say, honey?
0: First they asked, was there any guns in the house? I said, I don't have any guns, man. So then he said, what's your name? I said, Bobby Lowe. He said, no, your real name. And I said, uh, Walter Curtis Miller, he said, you had a good run. My mind is, you know, wow. After all these years, man, these guys going to take me to jail. Boy, this is something I never wanted to see again in my life. And I'm
3: so shocked. And my daughter and my uh, son, Justin, were standing there and they're in tears. I'm in tears. And. (laughs) <laughs> I said, he needs a coat. And so they let me get his coat and he put his coat on and everything. And they put the handcuffs on him on the outside. And they said to my son, um, Justin, before they left, one of the guys, the cops said to him, he said, your dad's a good guy. He said, you just do what you're supposed to do, son. And, you know, talking to him like that. So that was that morning. And I, I just remember how I was just crying, just crying, couldn't stop crying. So a few minutes later, it seemed like a few minutes later, a call came through and um, Bobby called first. And Bobby said to me, Cheryl, you know, I'm so sorry he was saying sorry and everything like that. And he said, you know, I'm going to explain everything to you. This all happened before you and before the kids. And I had always knew something. Bobby was keeping something from me. I didn't know what he was hiding, but I felt it was something. I'm like, okay, Bobby, I was just like, it's going to be okay. Because I didn't know, you know, it was just frantic. So... Then another call came in, which was the lawyer. And she said to me, Mrs. Love, she said, when you go and see Bobby, she said, you're going to ask for Walter Curtis Miller. And I said, oh, I said, is that the facility that he's in? And it just got so quiet, like you could hear crickets. And she said, no, ma'am. She said, you just asked for that name. And when I hung up, as I was hanging up, my daughter was standing and I said, oh, Jesse. I said, that's your father's real name.
1: At that point, Bobby's 65. He's got diabetes. He walks with a cane because of a leg injury. And he's back in prison, sentenced to 10 years. But Bobby was confident he would be out soon. God
0: had just reassured me that whatever happened to you going forward, I'm going to be there for you. And that's how I just figured, I just said, I'm not gonna be here long.
1: Do you think it was God that got you out after one year instead of the 10 years?
3: Of course, of
0: course. uh, All the time, it was God, it it was all God.
1: Did God help you escape from prison?
0: Um, I think God kept me safe. I don't think he just set it in in, in motion for me to escape. I think God, you know, he played a hand in it, yes. God has played a hand in everything, right or wrong. As long as I wasn't hurting anybody, that's what I felt.
1: Cheryl, you write about how that year there were some blessings in your relationship.
3: Yes, of course. I was mad at the time. I didn't want whoever turned him in or whoever. I said, "How could they do this?" But you know, he turned it all around for our good. God turned this. It turned it all around. We were right each other. And he just would tell me, he said, Cheryl, I'm in a different kingdom now. I'm in a new kingdom. And I was like, oh my Lord, he's getting saved. And we talked on the phone every day, every day and every night. And I wouldn't miss my call, you know, when he would call and we would pray together. We just trust God and, you know, for a better life and not to keep things from each other, to speak to each other, to let each other know how you're feeling you know and so
1: it brought you two closer together it sounds like yes
3: it really did it really did
1: Cheryl Thank how god. did you how did you decide to forgive bobby for lying to you all those years
3: it was god it was the lord It's like <laughs> you have to give people a second chance god gives us all chances and so i just i loved bobby and i felt like he would do the same thing for me And that, you know, I just didn't want bitterness in our marriage. And that's what was holding things back. He was holding on to this secret. So I was glad that he finally told me.
1: (laughs) Bobby and Cheryl Love have published a book about their story. It's called The Redemption of Bobby Love. And it is such a great story. But most people who end up in prison do not escape. And most also don't manage to reform their lives as completely as Bobby did. So are those two things connected? We'll explore that next. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today in America, there are 2 million people in jail or prison. Once they're released, most will be re-arrested within five years, and nearly half will end up back behind bars. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Why don't more people manage to get out of prison and stay out? Sociologist Ruben Jonathan Miller says the justice system itself often stands in the way.
4: So what we've done is we've prevented them from being able to move from being able to work, from being able to live anywhere. And all these things lead to more and more crime.
1: What's it like for someone with a criminal record to try and become a productive member of society in the face of all that? We sent Top of Mind producer Ciara Hewlett to find out.
5: Hi, My name is Nathan Sterling, and I was incarcerated on a sex offense, and I'm a registered sex offender. So basically, six days after I turned 18, I was committed to jail or prison and I'm now 45, so give or take about 19 and a half years in and out of the correctional system.
2: Sterling's first stop after prison was a halfway house.
5: The halfway houses, it, they're almost set up to send you back to prison. Hmm, why? Because of the, the, what they're requesting of you, follow your parole stipulations and have a certain amount of work hours, have a certain amount of this. Um, and then they don't give you the amount of times to be able to leave the facility to go and chase down these things, but then you have to report back. You know. And so hmm. it's, it's, it's very restrictive, and there you don't, transportation is the bus system, um, so it takes a long time to get from one place to another. So it might take somebody months just to try to find a job unless they're lucky just because they can't get around
2: and he had debts to pay. Depending on the state, you've got fees from prison and supervision fees to cover the cost of being on parole. Plus, Sterling owed victim restitution.
5: Um, it somehow went from $1,200 originally ordered by the court to over $10,000 ordered by the court. Um, the state added interest onto it, so even though I'm incarcerated, I'm making no money, no wage, no legal wage, Um, I'm still gaining interest on something that I have no control over.
2: Many states add interest like that. And if you fall behind on those payments, you could get sent back to prison. So for Sterling, freedom came with a huge financial strain.
5: Am I gonna be able to have enough money to get through the week if I buy this coat that I need for work for the winter because I'm freezing? Or do I just not have a coat? I was stressed, I had lots of anxiety, I felt overwhelmed.
2: And his support system was in shambles after so many years away. So he started hanging out with a guy he knew from prison and things spiraled.
5: He started getting into back into drugs and I followed right along because we were friends. I'd never had done cocaine. You're dealing with all these little things that you've never had to deal with in your life all at one time. Um, you've been in an environment where you're you become extremely antisocial, and I, I needed I felt like I needed the way to feel better, and so I was self medicating, but I was self medicating with cocaine. I came back from work one day, and they tested me, told me I was dirty, so we were snatched up and sent back to prison.
2: That was one of three times he ended up back in prison. He's been able to stay out now for seven years and feels like he's really got his life on track. He found a landlord willing to rent to him, and he found a mentor who helped him start his own construction business.
5: And he turned into a father figure for me, uh, and I worked for him for five years on and off. I think that was key to my success.
2: Sterling was lucky to find that mentor. Other formerly incarcerated people I talked to said they struggled so much to reenter society that sometimes going back to prison seemed attractive. Here's Carl Daniels.
3: The first couple months out were kind of hard, and I, I honestly thought, you know, I'd be better off back in prison because I had a place to stay. I had three square hot meals a day, well, warm meals a day, we'll say. I had a place to sleep, I was clothed. I had um, medical attention and and psychiatric attention. I, I got that if I needed it.
2: But for Nathan Sterling, prison has not been as tempting because Who's that? Who's that? he has a cat and a dog.
5: If you go back to prison, what's gonna happen to them? I mean, just because they're animals doesn't mean they, you know what I mean? So that, I, that happened to me one time where I, I went back to prison and left a cat, and it, it like devastated me. I was depressed for like three days, sleeping. Huh, Bubbas? He's got like three names, Ruka, Bubbas, um, Hey. I can be emotional about it. He has been such a huge, like, companion. You know, here's somebody that cares about me. Here's somebody that's waiting to see me. They're not a person, you know, but that's enough sometimes. So yeah, that's one of my definite deterrents from committing a crime or making poor choices.
2: Out in the world though, people with criminal records don't often find that kind of unconditional acceptance. Many of the former inmates I talk to feel like people only see them as convicts. So it's hard for them to imagine themselves as anything else and break out of the prison cycle. Not all of them have a RUCA.
5: You want to go for a ride or a walk?
2: (laughs) Top of Mind producer
1: Ciara Hewlett. Did you know that the United States locks up more people per capita than any other country in the
4: world? One in two Americans has a loved one that's been to a jail or prison now.
1: And as I mentioned earlier, nearly half of people who are released end up back in prison within five years. University of Chicago sociologist Ruben Jonathan Miller blames what he calls the afterlife of incarceration. His book is called Halfway Home.
4: If you've got a felony record in this country, then 19,000 laws, policies and sanctions that target you and people like you preventing you from accessing work. There's an additional thousand laws, policies, and administrative sanctions across the country that prevent you from accessing housing. Nearly 4,000 prevent civic participation. Over 1,000 limit your access to your family. They, They say things like, you may not live in the home with a foster child, or you may not adopt a child. In some cases, Parental rights are terminated based on how long, for example, you've been in prison. So what we've done is we've erected an alternate legal reality for people with criminal records. Even after many of them have changed their lives in the ways that we say they should, we still prevent them from accessing housing or help in many meaningful ways. This is the afterlife or a part of the afterlife of mass incarceration.
1: And what's the consequence of that?
4: Well, I'll will t- tell you off top. Most people face severe housing insecurity. I could tell you about Jimmy uh, from the book. Jimmy had spent about eight years in prison for a, a, a drug uh, a drug crime. He was he used and he stole and he he, he, and he and he did these things. Jimmy used to live and stay with his mother when he got out of jail or prison, but his mother's landlord had heard that Jimmy had been staying with her. And told her, he has a felony record. If you let him stay here any longer, I'm going to evict you. The landlord was going to evict Jimmy's mother if she let him sleep on her couch, as she usually did when he got out of jail or prison. And so I asked him about her a few months later, and he told me that he stopped coming around her. I asked him why. He said, I don't come around her because she wants to help me. And I don't want to put her in the position for me to have to reject her help.
1: And so did all of this mean that Jimmy actually had a hard time staying out of prison?
4: Absolutely. I mean, he struggled for 20 years on and off. He moved in and out of jails and prisons across the state of Michigan. Jimmy was effectively indigent. And Jimmy's not alone. You know, over half of the people we incarcerate live at or below the U.S. poverty line. But Jimmy's handed a slip of paper on his way out of the prison gate when he's about to walk out the door that lists his conditions of release. Jimmy must... Uh, report to his probation and parole officer each week and submit a year analysis. This is gonna cost him about $10 each time he does it and he must pay for it. If he doesn't, it's a violation of his parole. Jimmy must go to a workforce treatment program because he's indigent. He's been homeless on and off. So they say you must go to workforce development programs. But how does he get to a workforce development program? There's nothing near his home. He needs to take the bus. Where does he get bus fare from? He's effectively indigent. If he misses his appointments, he could be sent back to jail or prison. Jimmy must go to a drug treatment program, Narcotics Anonymous. In his case, it was twice a week. How is he going to get there? He has no money for transportation. If he misses his NA meetings, he can be sent back to jail or prison. So these are all uh, well-intentioned things. Jimmy, let's get you ready for the worlds of work. Let's get you ready for life on the outside. Let's help you out. But how is he going to get there? And when we finally got there, I followed him to one of these places that he was ordered to go to on the first day he was ordered to get there. And when he got to the social service agency he was told to report to, the agency itself had closed. I decided to help him to try to get to the next one. I gave him a ride in my car because he didn't have bus fare. We drive all the way to the agency and we find out that that agency's full. There's not enough capacity to meet the need of all these people who are ordered to do these things. Jimmy told me he was worried. He said, I might get sent back to prison for this. And Jimmy was right.
1: Really? People really get sent back to prison
4: about a quarter of all prison admissions each year are for parole violations, just like these.
1: But don't we have reentry programs for this very purpose?
4: Yes, yes, and 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 they do important work. They relieve real human suffering in real time. Ah, uh, the programs that, that 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 work really well, but what reentry programs cannot do is reentry programs cannot address the legal apparatus that criminalizes your very existence. There are forty four thousand laws, policies, and administrative sanctions that target people with criminal records that keep them out of the labor market, keep them out of the housing market, keep them from accessing social service support, keep them from spending time with their families.
1: What what effect does this have then on uh, in general on family members? And on the individual, him or herself, coming out of prison, if they, you know, in a situation like Jimmy, even, he had to stop going around the the person who loved him and would have taken care of him because he didn't want to put her in trouble.
4: And isn't that striking? You know, Jimmy told me once, he says, you know, you're not the only one who goes to prison. They're in there with you. That's what he said. And I, I heard that from so many people, some version of that. Some version of that story always came up you know parents raising their children 15 minutes at a time through collect calls that their family on the other side of that call can't afford to make can't afford to receive court dates they can't afford to go to legal fees well that's why they're on the inside when they're on the outside they are made dependent on you the family member who can barely afford to do it. And there are other families that were sent to the brink of and families who were in fact made homeless as the result of this legal infrastructure. The impact on American families is something that we haven't yet come to grips with.
1: Professor Miller, if we got rid of these rules though, I mean, if if we eliminated the afterlife of prison and said in the most extreme case, all right, you've done the time we assigned you, so come on out now, this is never gonna follow you, no one will have to know what your crime was or that you've been to prison, you can do live where you want, do what you want, work where you want. How could we keep our communities safe?
4: That's a great question. It's such a great question. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna respond to that in two ways. Um, the first is the problem of looking for safety in the ways that we sought safety. To get safety, we've excluded people. We're afraid of people with criminal records, so we said, you cannot work with us. We're afraid of people with criminal records, so we said, you cannot live with us. We're afraid of people with criminal records, so we said, we're gonna take your children from you. We're afraid of people with criminal records, so we said, you can't spend time with your families. And these are all things that criminologists have known have led to more crime since there's been the field of criminology. So what what the science tells us about the factors that lead to crime are housing instability, unemployment, and separation from family life. That's what leads to crime. We've known this is the wrong move. We do it anyway because we're afraid. And what we've gotten is not less violence. We've gotten more violence. So in seeking safety, we've made, in fact, a more violent world. There's also an ethical question. The ethical question is on us. Do we want to be the kind of society that never lets anyone live down a mistake that they made. Is that the society that we want? If it is, we should continue. If it's not, it's time to do something else.
1: And is that something else, an all or nothing situation here? Can or can, we, can we decide that some people we are afraid of or do deserve to have some restrictions with a sex offender registry, for example, or if their crime was a violent crime? Um, you know, do do you see do you see a problem with maybe just creating more a more narrow <laughs> afterlife of incarceration?
4: Um, yes, yeah, I do. So, so you know, I could tell you a story about a man named Ronald Simpson Bay who was you know sentenced to 27 years for, for a crime he didn't commit. He eventually was released. While he was on the inside, his son was murdered. His son. This is a boy who carried his name. He was murdered and he was murdered by a 14 year old boy and ronald's initial response was anger like everyone's would have been and his next response was to go to the court and to advocate for the boy so that he wouldn't be tried as an adult now the difference between the kind of sentence that you get and what happens to you if you're tried as a juvenile versus an adult are night and day if you get tried even for murder and you're considered a juvenile when you're done with the crime you can kind of move on with your life now This feels like a lifetime movie in many ways. You know, Ronald, why'd you do that? This boy killed your only son. He told me he did it because it was the right thing to do. He said he did it because the child deserved a place in the world. He said he did it because of the ethical commitment that he made to belonging, to the care for the other, even the other who may have caused this harm. That's a deep uh, ethical commitment. But I think it's one that we can all learn from.
1: Does it require forgiveness, forgiving and forgetting the crime?
4: Well, I asked Ronald about that. (laughs) I asked him, you know, did you forgive the boy? And he said, yes, he did eventually. Um, But he doesn't believe that it requires forgiveness. It it requires commitment. It requires commitment one to another. It requires a commitment to the kind of world that we might want and to building that world because it 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 costs you something, because it hurts, because you're taking a risk, because it 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 introduces vulnerability. No one wants to be vulnerable, and I understand that. But it, but it really is about the kind of world that you want. The kind of world that I'm pushing for is one where we make a place where people belong, or have a place, even if they've caused harm to us.
1: Professor, thanks for your time today.
4: Absolutely happy to happy to join me.
1: Ruben Jonathan Miller is a professor at the University of Chicago and author of Halfway Home, Race, Punishment, and the Afterlife of Mass Incarceration. So eliminating background checks in housing and employment might make it easier for people to fully rehabilitate themselves after prison. But can an employer or a landlord really just ignore a person's criminal history? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. top of mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, we are exploring the power of a clean slate. In America, a criminal conviction stays with a person for life. Most cities and states allow employers and landlords to reject you just for having a record. And we've heard how being without stable work or housing makes a person more likely to end up back in prison. But what's the alternative? A handful of cities have passed what's called fair-chance housing laws, which ban landlords from doing background checks. Seattle was the first in the country to pass one. And for Sue Mason, the difference was dramatic. I had never experienced just applying and getting approved before, and I did. It was crazy. Because she had a past criminal conviction and had done 15 months in prison 20 years ago, finding a place to live had been a constant struggle. All of the evidence points to the fact that I do pay my rent, that I'm not going back, that I'm a stable and contributing member of society. And yet seeing a background check, it you know, made people clutch their pearls and say no. And it was painful. Seattle's law took effect in 2018. So far, it has withstood legal challenge from landlords. Oakland, Berkeley and Portland have since passed similar laws. There is anecdotal evidence from people like Sue Mason that these laws make a difference. Researchers at UC Berkeley and the advocacy group Just Cities are doing the first study to find out for sure. But even the few landlords who support these laws are skeptical that they're really a solution for people with criminal records.
6: Because if they've been in prison or jail, they probably haven't been building their credit and they probably won't meet my minimum credit score requirement.
1: This is Krista Goldbranson. She's executive director of the Berkeley Property Owners Association, which supported the Fair Chance Housing Law. She notes that landlords in Berkeley are still allowed to do a credit check and ask about income. The people who
6: have criminal background histories that may be impacting their housing choices, they're already having a whole host of difficulties finding places to live, primarily around affordability in the Bay Area. And the organizations that might be able to help them the most are subsidized housing, like the Federal Housing Authority or the Local Housing Authority.
1: Subsidized housing programs like that are exempt from fair chance housing laws, so they still do criminal background checks. But would there be a way to encourage landlords to rent to people with criminal records and do it willingly? Gulbranson says there are things local governments could do, like give landlords money to fix up an apartment if they rent to someone with a criminal record.
6: Many times, small landlords have very small profit margins, and it is difficult to be able to update a unit. But to have some financial help to do so is one incentive that really helps. And then I think the other incentives are around assurances to the owner that they will have a partner if there is a problem with the tenant, because that's where owners get fearful that they will choose somebody with that background. And ultimately, that might turn into inappropriate or dangerous behavior towards the owner or other tenants. And then what can the owner do at that point? Call the police. Well, unfortunately, due to additional policies in Berkeley, uh, there are eviction protections for tenants that make it very difficult for us to terminate the tenancy. The reality is, yes, you can call the police, but the police have no right to say whether that tenant can continue to live in the unit or not. They are protected by law. And if I want to terminate their tenancy, I have to go to court and prove that they're a danger mm. to other people on the property in order to legally terminate their tenancy. Mm. Many small owners are not sophisticated enough to deal with complex problems, and they need that support to help deal with it.
1: Even with those concerns, Gulbranson has seen firsthand how a landlord can overlook a person's criminal history and make it work. I grew up in this situation. Um,
6: My grandmother, her husband, my grandfather passed away unexpectedly and she had just built a big house. And she was a nurse and she saw men coming out of the prison system and they needed housing. And she used to rent rooms to the formerly incarcerated. And I grew up in community with those people that lived with my grandmother and they often helped her around the house or were kind of acted as her protector because she was a single woman living alone. She is that example to me of how it is possible if you spend the time to get to know someone and see people as individuals that you can become more comfortable with taking that risk.
1: But you've but but you also been inclined where you're allowed to do a criminal background check. And so how do you reconcile those two ideas? I mean, you're- you're Yeah,
7: I
6: reconcile it with the knowledge and very much the belief system, which is we are all individuals. We all have a story. There are so many factors that go into making a good tenant. I have to look at criminal backgrounds and I'm happy to ignore- you know, DUIs, marijuana convictions and all that. But if I see that someone has beat someone else up, especially like an apartment community and one tenants beat another tenant, I really have to think twice about that. So it's making decisions based on that level of knowledge and understanding of sort of human nature. And, And that's very difficult. A lot of us
1: don't feel comfortable doing that. Back in the 1980s, a Zen Buddhist named Bernie Glassman decided he was comfortable taking that risk at his bakery in Yonkers, New York. And he started a movement in business
7: called open hiring. What Bernie recognized was the dignity of work. And he would encounter a lot of people who would ask for money. Bernie's philosophy was, I'm not going to give you the money, but I have a bakery. You can come in and get a day's work and we will pay you. And he saw that this gave people a sense of value, a sense of purpose, uh, that they were earning their wage as opposed to simply begging for it. This is Penny
1: Jennings. She's vice president of strategic programs at Grayston Bakery. You've had their brownies on Delta flights and in Ben and Jerry's ice cream. They still hire people first come, first served, no questions asked.
7: We have no screening process. We do not ask, what is your background? We do not ask, do you have any skill set for the job? We do not ask, where have you worked before? No resume required, no screening, no background checks. Basically, no judgment for your past.
1: Leroy Bailey is one of Grayston's employees.
8: I work as a janitor, I clean the offices, uh, bathrooms. I had a misdemeanor that happened when I was younger.
1: Back in his twenties, Bailey spent two weeks in jail waiting for a court date since he couldn't afford bail. The judge gave him time served, but now Bailey's in his fifties, and that conviction still haunts him.
8: All these years, I've been applying like places like Walmart and, and Sam's Club, any like warehouse or you know uh, decent employment. The, 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 yeah, they wouldn't let me. You know. I had to do odd jobs. I started house painting and doing handyman work to get by until I until Grayston fell into my lap.
1: When you when you came to Grayston and said, I want to, I want to apply for a job, um, and they said, Oh, there's no application, just put your name on the list. I mean right. what I, was, did you- I was
8: shocked. I was shocked. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't believe it. So this is what I'm saying. When I got the opportunity of a second chance. I took it and I grabbed it with both hands, and I'm I'm running with it right now to this day.
1: Do you have a family? Are you providing for yes, a family?
8: I, do. I got grandchildren. I got a wife, two kids, and two grandchildren. <laughs> so, yeah. what
1: what difference has it made for your family then to be able to have this?
8: Everything, everything. Uh, we 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 are out of, we are out of a shelter situation. We are we, we are now paying for our own apartment. Me and my family, me and my two boys. My two boys are grown. They're working. Uh, we, uh, we're no longer uh, relying on public assistance. We, we Me and my wife have both learned to thrive on that second chance of making our lives better.
1: Grayston Bakery has a foundation now that helps other companies embrace open hiring. Penny Jennings says employers often get curious about it when the labor market is tight and they're struggling to find workers the traditional way. So far, open hiring has mainly been used for factory, warehouse, or maintenance positions, not for jobs that interact directly with customers all day long. But that is where the body shop is taking things.
7: So I'm Nicolas. I'm in charge of the Americas for the body shop.
1: Nicolas Debray is leading the rollout of open hiring for all of the body shop's entry-level sales positions in its beauty and skincare stores all across the United States and Canada. Debray says it's a logical step for the body shop since the bulk of the company's employees are in retail. And he says it shows the company's commitment to social justice.
7: And this is as well as probably where we can be a, a pioneer. It's quite incredible as well when you get people to who you give a second chance, how much dedication and hard work you're getting from these people, how loyal and dedicated they are. And from a business standpoint, it works.
1: He's watching the numbers, but so far, open hiring has not hurt performance or customer satisfaction in the body shop stores.
7: There's not been any case of like, it doesn't work as good.
1: You feel like you can guarantee a safe workplace for your employees and for your customers.
7: Absolutely. Uh, I'm quite adamant on this, and I think we obviously, you know, we need to be data-driven. But for the moment, I have no indicator to tell you that there is any change. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very confident to tell you, absolutely safe environment, yes.
1: But you can't just hire people this way and expect them to show up and succeed. Maybe they don't speak English fluently. Maybe they can't read or write. Maybe they're homeless.
9: I'd say the biggest challenge for a company is to understand what it takes to help People be successful.
1: Ted Castle is the owner of Rhino Foods in Vermont, which has been doing open hiring for several years with coaching from Grayston.
9: We make cookie dough that goes into ice cream.
1: So so any ice cream that has those yummy chunks in it. Exactly. And Ben & Jerry's is one of those customers. Yeah, we
9: actually invented the flavor um, back in 1990. There was no such thing as cookie dough ice cream, if you can believe it. Now it's in the top 10 flavors for... Most ice cream companies in the country.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, you um, you deserve a, a like a congressional medal of honor or something.
9: So yeah, it's it <laughs> like taking someone to the moon, right? <laughs>
1: um, and so, so what are the jobs that are available through open hiring at Rhino Foods?
9: Realistically speaking, it's for entry level jobs. Um, so we have three shifts: we do two production shifts and um, one sanitation shift, and we spend two full days with people in a um, orientation onboarding, they get paid. And do we find that we probably 20% of the people don't get through that, that two to three day onboarding. Correct. They don't, you know, if they don't show up on time, then it's over. It's done. Mm. If they're not respectful, it's over. It's done. If they're not willing to learn it's over and done.
1: And so is your workforce different today since you've implemented open hiring?
9: Yes, I'd say the biggest is um, probably people um, getting out of incarceration is probably the biggest difference. Um, We actually uh, recruited in the women's correctional facility and went and talked to them about the job and talked to them about what it would take to work at Rhino.
1: Hang on, hang on. You did a job fair in a women's prison.
9: Yeah, and we actually were looking for more women in our production workforce. And so there's that whole segment of society that, um, you know, well really, if you give them a leg up and you do a good job and they do a good job, they're gonna be um, great employees.
1: Are they just as good or um, as employees if you weren't doing inclusive hiring? Like, do you have to lower your standards just a little bit?
9: No, I don't think it's a lower standards. I think you learn all these things that potentially become barriers or obstacles for people keeping their jobs. So an example would be they have to see their uh, parole officer. Oh, when are the hours of parole officers? eight to five Monday through Friday. We'd understand that and mm. we'd say, okay, you know, the biggest thing you can do is make sure that you are giving us the appropriate time to be prepared for this. You're not you're not just sort of walking in that day and say, oh, my God, I got a parole meeting today. I got to leave at two o'clock. You know, let, let's work this out together. So mm-hmm. we, we actually call it wraparound services. We have a person from United Way that is uh, we, we call a resource coordinator. All she does is connect people to services, child care um, homelessness, sometimes uh, living situations, cars, driver's license. So we've learned that providing help with those services is just another way to help our people show up. And again, remember, we're doing this for business reasons.
1: Yeah. I mean, does it even make business sense? You have to provide all this extra resource. Can you make just as much money?
9: Yeah. I mean, we're, everybody's dying for workers here and everybody's like, you know, who can pay them more and who can pay them more and who can pay them more and who can give them more bonuses. And, of course, that is a factor, but also so is the fact of uh, really integrating people into your culture, treating people with trust and respect, providing wraparound services, you know, focusing on the future. I mean, that's, to me personally, that's how you bring motivation and engagement Versus just giving somebody another dollar, extra dollar an hour.
1: Are you able to pay these employees less because they're so desperate to work for you? No,
9: that's not our. You know, that's not our strategy. Is oh, now we can, now we can pay them less. That's not our strategy. Our our strategy is to actually increase the pipeline. You know, have people wanting to come to Rhino, reduce our recruiting costs lower our turnover and increase our loyalty
1: and it works that that's worked for you
9: <laughs> when it works it's working yeah I mean I'm not, again I'm not making this sound like it's all easy it's it's like anything in business that takes time to get good at it and it's not always working and it's not always pretty you know we not every employee that we bring in here, uh, sees this as an opportunity and does what they need to do. Um, they don't, you know. We, we, ha- we still struggle with turnover, like a lot of people. Hmm.
1: Do you have problems with uh, inappropriate behavior at the workplace, or you know, violence or safety concerns?
9: We definitely have concerns. So the, to to say that we don't worry about it would be incorrect. But uh, you know, I I think the question. Is being asked, like, is there is there more because potentially we're doing less screening? Um, you know, no. I mean, we haven't we haven't seen an uptick due to that. Do we probably have a, our eyes wide open and are doing everything we can to um, keep our people safe? The answer is yes.
1: Why has this become part of your business philosophy?
9: So you, you know. I was never sort of a business guy, but I'm very into business now. I think business is has the greatest opportunity to impact people's lives. So we are all about our employees, our workers coming to Rhino in the best shape they can be. And then whatever we're doing at Rhino, we send them home in the best shape that they can be. And so we hope that what we're doing helps employees grow and be better citizens and be better community members. And we hope They're the best version of themselves.
1: That's Ted Castle, the owner of Rhino Foods in Vermont, one of the few companies in the country doing open hiring. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind today. You know, we started the episode thinking we were talking about the power of a clean slate. But the deeper we dove, we realized that what we were really talking about was the mistrust that we have in people who've committed a crime. It feeds a cycle where after someone's been punished, we place restrictions on them, which often drive them to commit more crime, so we trust them less, and at the end of it all, we are no safer. Now, breaking the cycle doesn't mean that we have to forget or even forgive what somebody's done. It just means that we have to stop being afraid, which could mean loosening restrictions on people with a criminal record, or just deciding, as employers and landlords and individuals, to take the risk and give that person a chance. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was created by Cleon Wall, Ciara Hewlett, and me, Julie Rose, with sound designed by Jacob Molaski. We'll talk soon.